As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to a live edition of Allocation Disorder. Paul Tenorio, my good friend and colleague Paul Tenorio, and I are coming to you from Murcia, Spain, where we are ahead of the U.S. Men's National Team's second friendly of the final international window prior to the World Cup, the last game they're having prior to the World Cup on Tuesday against Saudi Arabia. Paul, of course, the the first game didn't go so well on Friday in Dusseldorf, Germany against Japan, the U.S. losing 2-0 in a match where they were, you know, really bad, pretty much in every single way. Uh, So that wasn't too fun. We're going to break down that match. We're going to look ahead to what we're expecting on Tuesday uh, and and maybe preview a little bit more about the World Cup, things that we've learned, things that we've hadn't learned. We also uh, got to speak to USMNT head coach Greg Berhalter at the team hotel earlier today. So we'll share a little bit about that conversation as well. Um, But Paul, you know, here we are in Europe. It's been a pretty incredible trip so far, but not so incredible for the USMNT. Where do you think things stand after the game against Japan on Friday? Well, I think there's like kind of a weird vibe going on with the team because Friday's game went so poorly that in some ways you kind of toss it out and in some ways you don't. Like, I don't think you learned very much in that game. And that's really disappointing and difficult because these games were about trying to learn a few things. You're you're trying to learn who the starters are going to be. You're trying to learn a couple guys who are going to win out in position battles at center back, at left back, at the number nine position, um, even in midfield. So, you know, I I think it really made it tough to, to pull too much out of, out of that performance. And that means that there's a lot more pressure, in my opinion, on tomorrow's game against Saudi Arabia. You have to be good. You have to get something out of it. And you have to be better. This is your last chance to play together before the World Cup in November. It's the last chance for some players to make an impression within the national team camp. Obviously, you'll have games between now and and November 9th when the roster is named and November 14th when the team first shows up in Qatar. But... You know, I, I just think it was a really disappointing performance because of the stakes. 
And and Sam, you and I have talked about this kind of just between ourselves since that game and during our travels here. But I, I just feel like um, there's just like the stakes that were supposed to be on that game against Japan felt so high and the energy of the actual game, both the in-stadium energy and the on-field performance made it feel like a January friendly. And that was maybe the most surprising thing to me out of it. And I think that's the thing that I, that needs to be remedied the most against Saudi Arabia, that this, you need to play as though it's a game of real import. That was shocking to me, Paul. Just not just the lack of intensity, because you can sort of get it with the crowd. It was a weird vibe, and it wasn't going to ever be the intensity of, of say, a World Cup qualifier. But I think both of us, we didn't really know what to expect from that standpoint entering this camp. You go into qualifying windows, you know they're going to be intense. You know it's going to be a very business-like vibe. And then you go into the June camp, and you know it's going to be less than that. They have Nations League games, they're competitive, but they're not against good teams. And then the other two are friendlies. These last two games, this last camp before the World Cup, where guys are fighting for their spots, certain dudes on the roster are trying to click in and really get things going. And the vibe, at least before the game in Germany, was very loose, which isn't a bad thing. But you see how they play, and you're almost like, were they taking this seriously enough? And I think the answer is maybe not. You look at the duel statistics. Greg Berhalter, he talked about the personality or lack thereof in the match. And that's really borne out by the numbers. You know, Weston McKenney, who you normally count on to win a lot of those balls in the midfield, he was 2 for 13 in duels on Friday. And his body language was very nonchalant. And that was, frankly, it was a little bit disappointing to me. Um, We'll see how they respond. Berhalter today was, was sort of pleased with how they were processing the poor performance. Um, he certainly didn't make any bones of, or make any excuses for it today. We talked to him more at length than we did after the match. And, you know, the, the headline, I guess, was it was poor coaching, poor execution, poor training beforehand, a lot of everything. It's just one of those games. We were very bad. And it's, it's hard to argue with that, <laughs> certainly. There's a lot that went into it. But yeah, the attitude piece was concerning. I do expect that to be corrected, but I think historically, Paul, this has been a team that has played up to its competition in certain matches, but it's also a team that's played down to its competition a little bit more often than I'm comfortable with. Yeah, um, well, I'm looking at the chat real quick, and I'm just going to address kind of, we have two comments from the same person, Harry S. Um, The first asking, you know, do they need to try to build out from the back every time. And, and, you know, the second that it's an MLS mindset game planning versus world-class opposition. Um, Well, first of all, I I would like to say that I don't think so much of the plan in this game was about building out of the back. I think the way Japan was pressing put some um, more responsibility for the build out onto the center backs. And they did really poorly in answering that. Yeah. Um, Everyone figuring out. It started there. It started with the center backs Mm -hmm. and it it went to the central midfielders. I think um, all of them, all three of them had um, more they could have done to help to build out of that. But this team, if you've watched this team every single game from 2019 forward, you'll know quite distinctly that this team really has been a transition soccer team for at minimum, you know, since the summer of 2021. I mean, the, the yep. way they like to play is to play, to get out and run and be in transition, to be as vertical as possible in certain moments. There haven't been a lot of games where this team has 
been completely insistent on building out of the back the way they were in 2019 when Greg Berhalter first took over. The second thing I would say is like, I don't understand what the comment like MLS mindset slash game planning. I mean, Greg Berhalter went to Holland in 1994 and came back to the United States in 2009 and played for two years in MLS and then coached for five years in MLS before he took the job after coaching two years in, in, in um, Sweden so 17 years of his career that started in 1994 from playing through coaching, he coached from 94 to 2018, 17 of those years was spent in Europe. So this idea that he's like an MLS coach or completely MLS influenced and that he didn't spend the vast majority of his career in Europe is a misnomer or it is willfully ignoring it to try to make a, a point about like Europe versus MLS. It's just something that kind of bugs me because, you know, he is one of those players that in those early days where it was a lot tougher for Americans to make it in Europe, like went over and did just that, like built a very long career in Europe. And I think that's maybe ignored more than it should be. Uh, it's just a me thing. Sorry, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> um, Harry also points out that the pitch was terrible at a Bundesliga stadium. Um, yeah, it was really bad. Uh, everyone pointed that out. It definitely affected the U.S., um, not just in terms of how they played with the ball, but you saw Josh Sargent, I think, in particular. He was taking divots every time he was trying to start a run and fell over quite a few times. Having said all of that, Japan was able to control the ball and trap it and pass it relatively smoothly. They didn't have too many issues, and both teams were playing on the same field. So I don't think that's much of an excuse there. Not sure what the reasons were for it. But, Paul, if I'm the head coach of England or Wales or Iran, the latter two in particular, I'm looking at this game and I'm wondering, okay, Japan isn't going to be the same exact style that I set up my team in, but broadly speaking, when I'm playing the U.S. and Qatar, I'm going to make them beat me with the ball and I'm going to look for my opportunities in transition and I'm going to feel relatively comfortable about that strategy because I think for the most part, this team has shown us time and time again that they have a really hard time unlocking teams, not just in a low block, but we saw it from Japan in a mid block the other day. They have a hard time playing through compact, organized, and disciplined defenses. And I'm not sure if that changes. How do you feel about that heading into the World Cup? Well, yeah, I think I think what we've, what we've seen is that there aren't a lot of guys on this team who have kind of answers like... One of the things I think that you miss a lot with Yunus Musa is his ability to beat a guy through the dribble and create something and, and, and change the way a team is defending you based off of your like individual 1v1 um, abilities. And there just aren't haven't been as many players at the U.S. that do that. Um, I think it's notable that one player who does that, who wasn't available for the vast majority of World Cup qualifiers, was back on the field the other day in Gio Reyna. But Gio plays higher up the field. I think it's harder for him to um, to get on the ball. We saw that the other night. I think he, you know, I, I don't remember how many touches he had, but not very often. No. Um, but, you know, when he um, was on the ball, I thought you saw his quality once again. Um, so I, I think there is something concerning about it. But, you know, I just feel like they don't. You know, if, if they can get the game playing the way they like to play it, it shouldn't be as big of an issue. If they can get teams to open up a little bit and play um, a play a little bit more of an open style of soccer, especially when you got your full strength team on the field, I think they should be okay. And I think we'll see more teams play that way against them 
than we did in CONCACAF qualifying for obvious reasons. Really? You think, you think Iran and Wales will play that way against them? I think that there's a difference between, like, completely... Yes, I think the way that, like, Costa Rica played at home against them or that uh, Panama played at home in Panama against them. When I say Costa Rica, I meant at home in the United States. I should have said when Costa Rica played at the we, U.S. We, we or when the U.S. played yeah. at Panama. Like, yes, I do think there will be moments where those teams open up more than the CONCACAF opponents did. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think certainly it's a problem. And, and what we saw against Japan was that that problem translated also to a higher – it was a mid-block right. Right. Um, and it wasn't a low block. So, But, you know, I think that – I'm rambling here, but I think that um, the absences in this team that really truly are kind of counted on to unlock some of those problems – I think we're felt a little bit more acutely in in that game against Japan, not having Yunus Musa, even Anthony Robinson and what he brings on the left side, Tim Weah, his ability to stretch, stretch things. um, And then Christian Pulisic, like those are players who help a lot when they're on the field against something like a mid block, change the weight to Chris Richards. Yeah, for sure. So um, I do want to address another question. Edward G asking, do you find that Burhalter's ego is a hindrance to the team? It certainly seems to influence his team selection. Um, I think there is a level of like, there are certain guys that he likes. He likes the way that they play soccer, and he tends to give them chances to to prove themselves. I think Jesus Ferreira is probably the best example of that. Um, but otherwise, like I think most for the most part, there have been pretty obvious selections on the field of late. Like who started against Japan that shouldn't have? Like outside of like people have beef with Jesus Ferreira starting. Um, which I think is valid, and you know I've been a critic of of whether or not Jesus Ferreira can score at this level. Like I think there have been a lot. There's a lot of guys who just kind of are starters on this team, and so I'm not sure. Maybe on the greater roster, you can make some arguments about the center back position. I don't know if that's down to ego versus just down to guys he trusts versus guys he doesn't. And then you, you know, people, other people disagree with that. But I think that's going to happen. With any coach, I mean, look at like Tata Martino making up his mind about Chicharito not being on the team. Like every coach, every national team, they have guys that they rate, they have guys that they don't rate, and people are going to disagree with that. People are going to agree with that. I don't think it's specific to this coach versus another coach. I mean, you know, go down the list even of past U.S. coaches and who was selected and who wasn't. You know, Jurgen Klinsmann not taking Landon Donovan to a World Cup. So. I think it's I think it's a typical coach thing, not a specific to this. Coach and if we really want to get into sense. that and psychoanalyze Greg Berhalter, I think it's interesting because I think he has been slow to make changes that other people have been calling for loudly and frequently and sometimes for a long time. I don't really think it's like a huge ego thing. He does have an ego. A, a lot of people in his position do. Um, but I wouldn't say that his ego is like in the top percentage of the coaches that I've covered in my career, Paul. I don't know if you would feel any differently than that. No, I would say, I mean, look, I think one, we, we were all talking about this earlier. I was talking about this with some people earlier today. I would also say that of the more recent national team coaches, Greg Berhalter, like both on and off the field stuff as a national team coach has been more willing to change than other coaches. Right. He might be slower than people want him to change. Slower than I've wanted not, to. In, in some, he's not, some but case. he's not a guy who like people thought he was like, oh, this is the way it's going to be, and I'm not going to change. And it hasn't been that. He's changed the way the team plays. He's changed starters in the team. He's changed the way he is off the field with players, with staff, the way things are run. Like there have been a lot of changes since when he, from when he first took over to now. Um, and I think 
some people who kind of when he first came in thought like, oh, this is like never going to change. Like this is the gospel. This is the way it is. Have been surprised by that. And I think that comes down a bit to like ego or not ego or just like a willingness to like just to recognize when you have to adapt for the betterment of the team. And uh, so I don't know. It's, it's, it is a weird dynamic because like you said, like, yes, like anyone at this level, like the ego is for sure a part of it, like from players to coaches all the way through. I, I don't know, Sam, we have a couple of people asking to get on stage. So I thought we, we could bring one of them up, but it, it, it's an interesting question. And I think, um, you know, certainly some people might feel differently than I do. I, I do think his willingness to change is, uh, is worth noting. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Theodore, we're going to bring you on. Um, you should be on stage. Mike is yours, man. Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Okay, yeah. So so to me, the, the most recent uh, game felt more like the friendlies leading up to the 2019 Gold Cup when the directive, you could tell, was to, to play out of the back and it's almost like they're forbidden to make the long pass. I think the reason why Zimmerman looked so good in qualifying was because he was given that freedom to make the long pass. I've been watching Zimmerman play since he was in college. He's never been comfortable with the short pass. He's always been about the long pass, and he's better at it than many of the people that we really have. Uh, you know, I think his distribution in qualifying was good, but it seemed like you know they were ham- hum- hamstrung and just – playing short passes out of the back and it allowed Japan to just pack it in and we hardly ever got out of our half. Yeah. So I would say a few things to that. I I don't think it was some directive that they weren't allowed to play out of the back. It's that the personnel that Berhalter chose made it so there weren't any options over the top. And this goes into something that Vince M mentioned in the chat about Jesus Ferreira and how he thinks that he's a luxury player who doesn't really fit a position and if you're going to be that kind of guy, the system has to be really totally built around him and, and so on and so forth. Um, he was dropping really deep in the first half, and he was not trying to occupy center backs or run behind. Uh, Brennan Aronson and Gio Reyna, uh, they certainly have the ability to kind of stretch and run in behind, but they didn't really do a ton of that in the first half. That, that wasn't really something they were looking to achieve. And so when you have a front three that isn't really looking to get in behind – well, then there isn't really an option to hit long. And then I thought you saw after halftime when they changed the shape, but more importantly, when they changed the personnel for this regard, you know, they bring in Josh Sargent for Jesus Ferrer. They bring in Jordan Morris for Gio Reyna on the wing. Morris, fast, strong, comfortable winning balls in the air. Sargent wants to stay high. He's not going to drop into the middle as much as Jesus Ferrer almost immediately. And Paul, I think I remember remarking upon this to you from, from the press box at the arena they started, Mark McKenzie, I think, hit one over the top in like the 52nd or 53rd minute, 
And it opened things up. It made Japan less compact. It spread them out a bit. And it helped make things a little bit easier for the U.S. in terms of building building out. Um, I don't think it was some order or edict from Burhalter, hey, center backs, don't play long ever. I think it was just kind of a question of the options they were given. Because the center backs weren't good with their distribution in the first half. I don't want to like get that twisted. But the players in front of them did a really bad job of opening up for him, too. And that was a big part of it on t- on Friday. Not just opening up for them, but also like giving the ball away when they were on the ball in general. Like, yeah, it was bad all around. Know that as well. It was bad all around. But look, I, I mean, Sam, you know, I've, I've talked about this in a lot of different places and a lot of different times. Like, center back is the weakest spot on the depth chart. There aren't a lot of amazing options. Like, somebody is in the chat again asking about John Brooks. Like, John Brooks became a free agent and didn't sign with the team until after the season already started and is on the bench at Benfica. Yes, it's a big club, but I think that that, that happened for a reason. Um, and do I think that John... Did I expect John Brooks to get another look with the national team? Yes, I did. But I, I, I don't... I also remember being in Honduras and watching John Brooks play in September. And, you know, I, I remember what he looked like against Canada earlier in that window. So let's not pretend that John Brooks was like this insane, incredible center back for the U.S. men's national team. I think that would be I think that would be um, rewriting history a little bit. Uh, do I think that there are really clear and great options again at that position? I don't. I don't. I think, you know, forward is, again, another example of that. You know, we can debate Jesus Ferreira or Ricardo Pepe or Jordan Peacock or Josh Sargent. Um, none of them are like incredible decisions that like are very clear and wide open decisions. Like I, I've said this before again, I think Jordan Peacock has a better chance of making the roster right now today than Ricardo Pepe does. But as Greg Berhalter told us today as reporters, like now is a wonderful time to bring Ricardo Pepe in to camp and see him in person. Like you haven't seen him for a while now. You gave him June off after an up and a really up and down calendar year, like like 365 days of really big highs with the national team, then huge lows of not playing and not scoring at Augsburg, and then a you know transfer. Like they, he gave him time off in June, and he, now he makes this transfer to Holland, and he says, okay, he scores a goal. Let's see him right now. Like we know what Pifak is doing in Germany. We know exactly what he'll add to this team. He's a guy who can come on and be a physical presence late in games. If you especially if you want to go to a two striker format, if you're playing three five two. Maybe he could start a game. I don't really see Jordan Peacock as a starter for this team, but like maybe he could do that. Typically, like I would think of him as like a, a later game um, option. Whereas, like let's see what Pepe is right now. Let's see if Pepe can win a job on this team right now today. And I get that. I kind of get that. This camp was about seeing some guys you need to see, guys that you want to see. Can they make an impression to get onto this roster? Um, so, I mean, we're talking about two of the position groups here, center back and, and forward, where there's a reason why it's a wide open competition. Yeah, and there's a reason why. Ultimately, those two position groups, I think, will cost the U.S. the World Cup. I, I think that's probably how this thing, this whole thing ends. Um, but we're talking about people proving themselves and getting the opportunity. I thought Brandon Vasquez should have had that. But I'm going to give it to somebody in the queue right now. Uh, Garrett F., you're getting called up. You're on stage. What you got for us, man? Garrett, can you hear us? Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Awesome. Hey, thank you guys for doing this. I um, really appreciate it. Um, thank you, you mentioned for earlier. T- yeah, of course. Thank you guys for doing this. Um, so you mentioned, and I kind of am going to re- relate it back to something um, Michael Zimmerman might have some um, experience doing co- covering college football. But when we talk about like the team, and you mentioned the mindset, the training wasn't good this week. 
going into Japan, I think Greg's going to have to have a come to Jesus meeting with a lot of these players. And like, I hate to say this 50 days before the World Cup, that's really frustrating. This feels like something that happened 650 days before the World Cup. But these guys, we got we to gotta decide what we want to do in the World Cup. Do we want to be a team that flames out the group stage with, these, you know, with our ugly kits and everything? Or do we, we want to go out there and actually make something of ourselves? You know, I love Weston McKinney. Weston McKinney is one of my favorite players on the team. But the effort he gave last week or a few days ago was awful. It was miserable. It looked like something that you'd see, you know, in the second tier, you know, college. It was, it was just ridiculous. Um, I think also, uh, you know, kind of one thing that I would say that was a good positive takeaway about Japan was I think Matt Turner, for me at least, locked up the number one spot. I thought Turner played really well. Um, it was really encouraging to see because I've been really concerned about the goalkeeping position. Um, but, yeah, well, kind of relating it back to the to Greg and kind of, I don't know, my view of, you know, as a college football fan, especially going to the University of Alabama, when Nick Saban, when Nick Saban back in 2014 started losing games to teams with crazy offenses, he didn't stay in his ways. He didn't, you know, he didn't stay with his kind of old scheme of, you know, slow offenses. He changed. He brought in Lane Kiffin. He brought in guys who could do the kind of fast-paced, you know, throw it all around the ball or throw it all over the field type of offenses. And now, obviously, Alabama has continued their reign of success in college football. Greg Berhold is going to have to change a little bit. And I know it's kind of hard to do that 50 days before the World Cup with only 90 minutes until the start of the World Cup. But we we got to do we got to change up something. We have to change a little bit to what our players are suited for. I think that's that's a fair point. I think Berhalter has changed, and I think we're going to continue to see, once Musa comes back, I think we're going to continue to see him kind of drop next to Adams and assist in the buildup, and I think that's going to be, hopefully, if you're a U.S. fan, a meaningful change. So I think that's that's something. In terms of the attitude, I mean, we talked about it a little bit at the top of the show, but that was really disappointing on Friday. And, and McKenney, I think, was the chief culprit in that. And I think it cuts both ways with him. Um, he's a smart guy, he's engaging, he's funny, and on the field, sometimes he can look like he's not giving a crap, or it's really nonchalant. And when the U.S. is playing well, I think that can actually boost his teammates' confidence, if that makes sense. They see him, he's kind of doing his thing, it's casual, and they can they, they can go, okay, we're going at these guys, we're having a good time. But when it happens in a game like Friday, I think it has a negative effect, and I don't know. I mean, this is a really young team, but a guy like Weston McKenney, he's not that young. And he's got a lot of experience. And so that sort of thing, it, it is who he is. I'm not sure exactly what Greg Berhalter can do about managing personalities that are the same personalities for their club a lot of times that they are for the national team. Um, but yeah, that part of it was disappointing. And I don't really know what you do to fix that. I Again, like I said earlier, I thought this team would take things a little bit more seriously in this camp than they did ahead of the first game. And that's something that I'm going to be keeping a close eye on tomorrow. Because if they can't up that, then you're going to be like, okay, what's going on here? No, I fully agree. And I had to, I just wanted to ask one more question for you. Who, would you, who do you all think Greg starts at center back um, tomorrow versus who would you all start at center back tomorrow? Thanks again, guys. So we actually, yeah, we have our, actually, Paul, why don't you take it? I've been talking. Yeah, well, we, we have a piece coming out with a, a lineup prediction, but we did have a couple tougher decisions to make for the lineup. Um, we were debating center back, and we are debating that Eunice Musa midfield spot of what Greg Berhalter is going to do there. Um, I think we ended up, I ended up landing on Zimmerman and Long again because I think trying to get reps is a, a priority, especially if you kind of think, as I do, that Chris Richards and Cameron Carter-Vickers are thought of as kind of 
closer to the top of this roster. Um, but I could also... I mean, Berhalter said it today. If Chris Richards is healthy, he... Yeah, if he could... Well, he said if he could guarantee that Chris Richards was healthy and fit in November, and I think part of that was also, like, continuing to get some minutes at Palace that he would be on the team, right? Like, he he said that. Um, Then I think you start to prioritize guys you think are going to be there and and are going to play together because there have been so many different combinations of center backs played just since last June. Um, I think, what did I have it? I say I'm 15 different combinations Something played like in that. 28 I'm games. I'm not sure that Long and Zimmerman should be the combination, by the way. No, and, I mean, yeah. Uh, like, I, mean, I, I think, think I would start McKenzie tomorrow, but I think you're right yeah. that Berhalter will start Long. So Yeah, um, I, think, I mean, but it could be McKenzie. And then that, that midfield spot is a big, big, big question mark because of how it impacts the rest of the lineup. Like, if you play Brendan Aronson there, then you probably change, you, you might think about the center back position differently. If you play Luca De La Torre again, um, then you you know there's a decision to be made at right wing about yeah. Jaren's fitness a, and Brendan Aronson. It's, it's an interesting one. It's a question of whether or not you want to put player next to Adams or if you want to play that triangle two in front of him. And I think we know now you can't play Adams by himself and expect to really build up effectively through and, teams. But we'll we'll see how it goes. And Sam, Felipe, while, you, while you're talking about that, I know we yeah. have Felipe, but I well, you just brought up Tyler Adams and Edward G commented in our comment section about Tyler is his. Um, you know, his ability on the ball is a glaring weakness in our midfield and hurts the ability to transition yeah. play. Yeah, and I think, you know, through qualifying, Greg Berhalter didn't really tweak anything about that. He he was asking Tyler Adams to do more there, you know, and he talked about that, um, you know, to, to kind of help lead the buildup for the U.S. through midfield. Um, once they got through qualifying, he made a tweak um, that I thought was a significant one in asking Eunice Musa to drop down next to Tyler Adams in the buildup, get on the ball, and and basically take over that responsibility. Um, so I think um, you've seen an adjustment there that, that is meant to um, to maybe put a Band-Aid on that and, and to also acknowledge that Tyler Adams' defensive presence and what he does, how much ground he covers, his ability to read the play, make interceptions, protect the back line is still really important to this team, uh, but that they had to find a way to kind of take a little bit of that responsibility off of his plate. Felipe has been waiting patiently. Felipe, what's up, man? How you doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, let's actually let me much. let me peel back the curtain. Felipe was not waiting patiently. He was bugging me in Slack this entire time, being like, "Put me on stage, Sam. What is going on? What does actually have to do?" Actually, all I wanted was for you guys to read my 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 comments, like <laughs> like any other listener, just read my comments. Uh, but but Sam's like, "Well, come on on." So I so I'll jump on quickly. I don't want to take too much time from subscribers, but. Two, two, two things to say and to present to both of you. One, tactics. The tactics. Um, based on what Japan did, I thought uh, I went immediately back to the, the game at the Azteca that all three of us were at in person during, for the World Cup qualifier in March, U.S.-Mexico. And I remember the game kicks off, and, and Paul, I was sitting next to Paul, he, he just like looks at me and he's like, Tata's, Tata gave, gave the U.S. the ball. And that was interesting because... Mexico throughout Tata Martino's tenure, they, they do press pretty high. They are pretty intense in midfield if they have to. But he made a decision to give the U.S. the ball and allow them to, to beat them through the midfield and, and honestly through possession. Going back, that was a full-strength U.S. squad. I thought they did pretty well that night. But they were not able to figure it out against against Japan. And for me, the big red flag, it's it's two things. One, the Mexico game at the Azteca tells you that this team can do that if an opponent gives the ball to the U.S. Like they, I think they can figure it out. But the, for me, the red flag was that against Japan, 
they were completely unable to figure out an opponent that was locked in in their system, locked in mentally. They never matched their intensity. And you said it, Sam, that you know someone like Weston McKinney took the first 45 minutes off, and he is an example for the players. And you mentioned that he has a lot of experience. Like I would only counter that for me. He only has 36 caps at the international level. And that game against Japan, for me, like it really showed the inexperience of this U.S. side that we all know they're going to be super young at the World Cup. But that's going to be a problem if they get into these games early and they're getting they're beaten early in the game and they cannot get up to the standard of a lot of these opponents. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. would love to hear what you guys have to say. I don't think Iran is going to do the mid block. I watched them against Uruguay and they, they sat back, they parked yeah, their bus just, and just battled yeah. and just battled. So that'll be interesting. But that's yeah. tough for the U S too. So yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, two teams I, I, potentially that do that. I'm not so concerned that they're not going to bring the intensity to the world's cup. Yeah, yeah, I, agree. I think the, this the, team, the, the, the this team plays up. Plays, yeah, the, the yeah. This, this team plays up. Play up. Yeah, they're they're a young team, but that's that's part of it. Like they they do play up to opponents and they do play down to opponents, and I think we saw that. It was a, the atmosphere was not great. Five thousand people, I don't fifty thousand seat stadium. I don't think there's and any I, excuses for what they did. I don't. Honestly, again, I'm not weird. saying I'm. It's not an excuse. It's a fact. It's not an excuse. They have yeah. done this. Like they tend to play up and they tend to play down a little bit. But I agree with you, Felipe, and I think that part of the youth of this team is there haven't been a lot of these guys who are tasked with lifting a team up at the club level because they're they're still really young. They're not that important. They're not that guy on their team yet, nor should they be expected to be at this point. And and so like when things weren't going well in the first half, there wasn't anyone who really kind of took the game on their shoulders or woke the team up or figured out a way. Um, you know, and I, I think one person who was maybe trying to find ways to get involved was was Reina, but he was so isolated even when he came back. Deep to get the ball, there wasn't really anyone to play with. It was it was very difficult in that sense. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I think it was it was disappointing in that way. We we do have three people in the queue that we should bring on um, and and get yeah, them got get them on here. So we we, we don't have much time left. We're gonna go through you three. We see all three of you. You're coming on. Um, we have Dwayne, Elliot, and William. William, you've been waiting for a while now. So we'll start with William. We'll get to Dwayne and Elliot. Guys, hang in there. Thank you, Felipe. All right, William. I am bringing you on stage. The floor is yours. You there, William? No. All right. I think we lost William. Let's try. Let's try Dwayne. Dwayne, I'm bringing you up. Hey, thanks, thanks, thanks for the opportunity. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we got you. A oh, beautiful. Hey, as a as an immigrant to the United States, um, you know, mom being British, dad being Nigerian, two sucker crazy countries. I'm huge USMNT fan, huge ATL United fan. Let me just bring an international perspective in here. Um, the United States has B-level players across the board. You don't have a lot of skillful players like you think you will. No. Luca Della Torre, Musa, Dest, Reina have to be on the field as much as possible for you guys to be able to unlock the kind of stiff opposition you're going to face in the World Cup. You don't have a lot of skillful players. You don't have a lot of technically sound players like a Brazil, like a Senegal, like an Argentina, um, like an England now. Right now, the United States reminds me of what the English teams used to look like in the 90s. Not a lot of skillful players, not a lot of technical players. I think Greg Berhalter needs to just live in reality, understand the level the players are at, and just sit back and play a counter-attacking game. You have speed. You guys are athletic. 
you have to use that. You cannot play out the back. If you come to the field against England with trying to play out the back from your backfield, they will destroy the United States. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dwayne. I appreciate where you were coming from in that. And I do think, you know, I, I do think it's worth noting that, again, I want to emphasize, like, I feel like Greg Berhalter does know that maybe better than others. Like, this has been a transition team for a while now. And I will also note that three of the four players you mentioned were on the field against Japan. The only one that was missing was Yunus Musa, and they still couldn't unlock what was happening there in the first half. I would say the most important one in that regard. Yeah, the most important one for sure, Eunice. But this team is not trying to build out of the back. They haven't in a long time. They prefer to play transition soccer. They prefer to get out and run. They prefer to win the ball in a a pressing situation in midfield. And Greg Berhalter also talked about, we, we focused so much on how much the U.S. didn't unlock Japan's style of pressing the other night he talked about the fact that their their press against japan was completely off and that that might have been an even bigger problem and that they intended to come out and run and press and cause problems and because the front line pressing was so bad they were a few meters late which made the next line of pressing a few meters late which made the next line of pressing a few meters late and that just completely destroyed the idea that was there Um, to break Japan down in the way that they now prefer to play against teams, which is through transition brought on by the press. Um, It's not like a a full, you know, play against the ball system like Red Bull, but it's certainly one built around transition and pressing. And that part of it was was missing as well. And, And Greg Berhalter mentioned that. And I think you'll see at the World Cup that this team wants to press and they want to transition and they want to get out and run and see what they can do in that way. I think that's where they're at their best in breaking teams down. All right, we're going to try William again, and then we'll come to Elliot. William, oh, I'm... we actually, we got to bounce. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, They're shoot. doing another interview session right now. So Greg Berhalter is going to talk to us some more. We're going to listen in. Thank you so much for listening in to us. Sorry for those of you guys that we were not able to get you. I promise that won't happen again. We'll correct it next time. But thank you to everyone who did join in. Uh, game is tomorrow. We will be here in Murcia in attendance, and we will have plenty of post-game coverage for you on The Athletic and probably in some audio mediums as well. Thanks again, everybody.